Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 85 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Doug Pinnick and I play in a band called King's X. I play bass and I'm the lead singer. Uh, you know, it's amazing to speak with you, Doug, because before we hit record, I was trying to rattle your brain and memory and let you know that we spoke back in the early days of Faith, Hope, Love and Dogman. I was doing a lot of writing in the, in the hard rock world and I had a chance to speak with you back then. And I always enjoyed our conversations, but more importantly, I always loved the band so much, which I'm going to assume is something you hear a lot of and still must make you go, well, if everybody loved this band so much, why wasn't it bigger than they were? <laughs> I used to think that, but now I know why, and uh, I'm okay with it. Well, tell me why. I'd be, I'd be curious to know. Is it that? It's just simple. If, if, uh, if Coca-Cola comes out with a brown Coke and everybody buys it and someone decides to put, make it white, and they put it out there that it tastes the same. It's exactly the same thing, or maybe even better. And no one buys it. What are you going to do? You're so, not going to sell it. And that's what we are. Um, we're a fine wine. I can say that egotistically. We're, you know, very few people like us, but those who like us love us. But do you? you know, th- sometimes you have to just settle with that, you know. Do you think that time? plays funny tricks on our brain. Like I'm sitting here, I'm in Canada. So, you know, I'm going to talk about a little bit about Rush. Uh, you know, Rush was one of those bands, like even during that time that people always oh, rush, rush, rush. But I remember times, especially when they were transferring over to more keyboard based stuff where you know, people look down on them, maybe they're too old, they're beyond their years. And then over time, Iron Maiden is like this too, a little bit where there seems to be this weird nostalgia thing that kicks in where people suddenly think that they're bigger fans than they were at the time. It's like a weird mm-hmm. phenomenon, especially in the genre of, of, I think, progressive hard rock. It happens a lot more. I've noticed that. Um, it's kind of exciting. What's happening is, is this, I mean, kids, um, just think about it. This is 2020. So between 2020, there's kids that are 20 years old that never heard, they weren't even born when Dogman came out. They weren't even born when Caressa Steel came out. And they're the little sponges like we were, the kids who love rock music. Um, they're still there. They still keep being born, and they still you know, want to emulate who they've listened to that moved them. So the way I look at it is it's, it's sort of like a second win. There's been a real dead spot in rock music, I think, for a long time. And I think the next generation of kids they're ready. They're ready to rock out. They're done with rap. They're done with um, uh, just whatever we're hearing nowadays, you know, basically superficial rock music. And they want to hear the real deal again because everybody does. Um, and I think they're the ones that are spearheading this. I've noticed a lot of kids in their 20s and younger that just are totally into 70s music or music that just has more of an organic type of uh, feeling to it, you know. 
Yeah. Or they like wearing the t-shirts. We see a lot of that too. (laughs) (laughs) That's true too. But I find that they like the bands. Yeah, I agree. But it's not that they, they went into the discography and listened to everything. They just maybe seen two videos, but they thought it was cool. I mean, that's how we did it. You know, when we were kids, we heard one song by the Beatles and we went nuts. (laughs) Yeah. There's also something interesting. Like I've been a big fan of progressive and hard rock music. If I think about my trajectory, you know, being exposed to things like in 83, the Us Festival, the, the Metal Day, you know, Ozzy and Motley yeah. Crue and all that. And then even before that, you know, my brothers being into Kiss or Van Halen or Cool and the Gang or whatever it was. It was, it was, it was a mix of what's going on in Top 40 and then yeah. what as an individual, as you become an individual, you know, human, you start exploring and discovering. And what I recognize when I think back about why do I love this? Because we- I do think it's all weird music. Like, why did I like this weird music so much? And it wasn't necessarily that it wasn't mainstream. I think I've always been attracted to the way opposites can collide. And I think King's X is one of those very unique instances where there was almost so much going on. And then there's only three human beings in the band. There's so much going on if you love hard music. But at the same time, you could almost listen to it as a funk type of R&B Motown vibe. There, and I like that contradiction. Were you writing and thinking about music in that way, or is it just because of how you were brought up, that's the music that's coming out? I think it was both. Um, uh, soul music has always been probably the, the biggest form of music that was in my life, even though just about everything was as a child growing up. But uh, the singers basically is what I loved, uh, and, uh, Motown singers and even Aretha Franklin and uh, Stevie Wonder and all that stuff. Um, but it was the music, the funky music I loved. I loved to dance back when I was a kid and I would get up and dance to anything that had a groove to it. And my favorite music had this certain vibe. And when I heard Sly and the Family Stone and Thank You for Let Me Be Myself Again, it was like the answer to what I was looking for. I called it raw funk. And I expected, I wanted to hear the whole world explode and everybody sound like that concept of that one song. And um, no one did. But it stayed with me. And there was, there's, so there's always this element of funk in what I write. And but the thing is, I as a young person back in the 70s, you know, what what do we do? We like the music that we grew up listening to, but we just want to play a little bit harder. So for me, I wanted the funk music to be harder, like Led Zeppelin, you know, and that's why I love Led Zeppelin so much. Is like when I first heard Zeppelin, too, it was like a black funk band with no frills playing hard. And I got it. You know, and that's but that's what, what they were. I mean, ultimately, right. they were a band that was stealing music from the blues and exactly. Delta. Exactly. I mean, that's what exactly. it was. Exactly. So it wasn't something new to me. It was just a big influence on me. And it, and it uh, sort of uh, gave me what is the goal for going for it, you know, because it was what I loved, what I was naturally used to. And all of a sudden, uh, my generation uh, we had a voice in it, which was really, really cool. Um, but the thing is, you know, I went through the 70s trying to do that. I mean, when I first heard uh, Band of Gypsies, that changed everything for me. That's when I thought, OK, this is what I want to hear. This basic, funky, 
bluesy rock and roll soul music because Buddy Miles sang his heart out on that, you know. And so it was like something that I just went for. And I've always been um, uh, my favorite music has always been black rock music, you know, rock music played by black people. There was a band called the St. Louis Sheiks. They call them the Sheiks. Um, from St. Louis. You should check them out on online sometimes. They were the band that actually changed my life. Um, it was an all-white band with a black singer who played gospel keyboards. So cool. And he, he would get up front and rock you like you were in church, but the band was straight up soul rock. And I mean, the riffs were rock and roll, but the grooves were like you were up in a church dancing, you know, mm -hmm. they had, they had a, such a combination and that's always been my template for, for, a, you know, a part of the way I write music. Um, you have to check them out some, I'll give you even some of the, 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 um, um, a couple of my favorite songs when we, when we get done, yeah, uh, sure. that you can look them up on uh, a YouTube yeah, it's funny that you, as you're saying this, I'm I'm often you know as I get older too, I'm being more reflective of like what music I like because I like to think that I like mostly new stuff, but as I get older, I do become more nostalgic. It's a very strange thing that I'm dealing with at this immediate moment in my life. And I've always loved jazz, and I've been a big jazz fan. When I started playing bass, it was a weird thing. So I was a metal, you know, white metal kid with long hair with a Billy T Sheehan T-shirt on. But at the same time, I had like a Jacko T-shirt on, or uh, like I could go through a whole bunch of killer, you know, Stanley Clark T-shirt. I had all of these weird things. And when I think about it now, or when I listen to even like Chick Corea or Weather Report, it feels like metal to me. And like you start realizing that. There would never have been any crazy music if these jazz improv cats weren't destroying their instruments like they were doing. It's just, it wasn't distorted yeah. or on guitar. It's the craziest music. Right. It was like you were saying originally when we first started talking, is that the combinations of all those things and they rub up against each other and create this new form of energy, you know, and, and some of us get it and some of us don't. And it seems like that's kind of what makes great music, don't you think? Well, more than ever. And again, I wonder if that's a function of age, like as you, you know, suddenly you, you get into classical music. That was the music like you oh, ignored because your parents yeah. liked it. And then you get older and you like listen to a concerto and you're like, that's the craziest metal mosh pit ever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I do agree with you there. Uh, I've never left that stuff, though, because like Beethoven's Fist is like metal to me. It's crazy. As a kid, I loved that song. You know, I liked anything that was in your face and made you move, moved you sonically and emotionally. Yeah. Um, and and in, in any music, I mean, bluegrass is the same thing. I, I can cry listening to some people do bluegrass harmonies, especially when they go hum, doo, doo, oh, that yeah. kind of stuff. Oh man, my, my my eyes swell up because I feel that 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 feeling, and uh, I've even uh, incorporated it in the music that I make. You know, I mean, I try to steal everything from everything that I hear that 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 moves me. It's amazing. So your history is is really interesting to me, and then we're going to get into the, the music history, but I want to get into the, the person stuff a little bit. It's very clear to me when I read articles about you and the Wikipedia page, which could be true or false, but that there was a lot of music in your house as a kid, that there was constant exposure of people playing. Now, granted, you had many, from what I can see here, many stepbrothers and stepsisters <laughs> in the household. It's a kind of a crazy number if Wikipedia is correct. Um, 
But what I'm most interested in is there's a moment in time where someone looks at that four string instrument and goes, that's it. That's for me. That's my thing. And I'm curious about pre that moment, what you felt about bass and that instrument, but what was the moment where you were like, no, no, this, this bass thing, this is, this is going to be my ticket. Well, I, I never thought of it was going to be my ticket. Um, I was about nine or 10 years old and I was at my cousin's house and, and they were, they had teenagers in that house and they used to play rock and roll. And let me, let me make a quick scenario here. My great grandmother raised me. She did not allow any other music, but gospel music in her house. <laughs> so I was raised under that. I was not allowed to listen to anything else, but she had 10 kids who were my aunts and uncles who had kids who were my age. And I always went to different relatives' house and hang out with my relatives and play with them because I lived alone with my great-grandmother and I always wanted to play with my cousins. But every relative was into a different type of music. I had a, I had one relative who was into blues and they went to Chicago or the guy would drive down from Chicago and sell them the new Muddy Waters and the new B.B. King out of the back of his car. And they'd play it on the front porch and I'd go over there and I'd listen to it. Then I'd go to my other cousin's house who was playing rock and roll and and I'd listen to Chuck Berry and uh, uh, Little Richard and things like that. Then I'd go to my other aunt's house and I'm listening to big band music, Ella Fitzgerald and stuff like that. And as a kid who was just loving music and in grade school even, show music and choir stuff. I was in the choir. So anything that had anything to do with music, I was there. I didn't have a I like this or I don't like this kind of attitude. I was just a kid. So um I was at my cousin's house and they put on this record called Why Do Fools Fall in Love by Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. Mm. And the bass line came on, upright bass. And I heard that and it just it just hooked me. And from that moment on, everything that I heard, I paid close attention to the bass to the point where I would walk around the house with a broom and play like I was playing bass, even left-handed. And I never saw anybody even play a bass because, you know, all you saw was uh, <laughs> uh, American bandstand with upright basses. And I think I probably saw somebody with a bass, a regular bass strapped on him because I used to play around the house with a broom and play like I was playing one. Um, so bass was always my thing. I was 23 years old when I first started playing bass. No, um, how's that possible? To make, to make a long story short, um, coming from, you know, poor, a poor black child, we didn't have, you know, there were no instruments around. I lived in a town with a thousand people. We didn't even have a music store, barely a police station. So, you know, all the things that a lot of kids would have, it was not there for me. The only thing that was there for me was record players and records. And that's what I immersed myself in for, you know, for my appetite for music. Um, so, um, when I was about 14, I moved in with my mother and uh, she allowed me to listen to anything I wanted to at that point. So that's when the learning started happening, where I had music in my house, where I'd put on uh, a Stevie Wonder song or uh, uh, Aretha Franklin. And I could I could buy the record and play it over and over again and sit there and try to find every nuance and every crack and crevice that was in their voice. I tried to imitate it. Um and but I always heard the bass in the background. And so it was to me, it was like I focused on the vocals in the bass um, being poor, not knowing 
and not realizing, and this is ghetto mentality, mind you, that you're so poor and you're so used to not having anything, you don't think that you can have anything. Yeah. It's not like a word that somebody says that it's just a matter of thinking. And I was 23 years old and I used to talk about wanting to play bass for years to my friends. I was obsessed with it. And this boy said to me, he said, dude, if you want to play bass so bad, why don't you buy one? He kind of was annoyed at me. <laughs> and, it, and, and I thought about that for a second and I go, oh, I can buy one. And then it literally a light came on like somebody didn't know any better, which I didn't. I don't know why. Or maybe it was just because I didn't go to a music store and there wasn't one hanging on the wall where I even thought about buying one. So anyway, make another long story short. My best friend buys a, a cheap ass bass for his girlfriend for Christmas. And I was 23, he was 22. And he brought it over to my house and said, hey man, why don't you play around with this until Christmas and so I can give it to my girlfriend. And I wouldn't give it back to him when he came and got it. He tried Lump of coal it. for you, buddy. <laughs> oh yeah, he tried, he tried, he asked for it three times and I just would not give it to him, I couldn't. And he finally said, he just, later on in life, 30 years later, he tells me, he says, you know, I saw in your eyes that you really, you needed that bass and so I just, walked away and I literally took it. I stole it. <laughs> so, so I'm curious when you finally get your hands on it, is it immediately obvious that this is the thing for you? Was it there? <laughs> I remember when I, I asked somebody how to tune it and they came over and tuned it for me to a record. I think it was deep purple or something. <gasps> and, and I remember my favorite song at the time was Joe Tex by uh, buddy miles uh, Great uh, Express and the the riff was do 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 and I remember I tuned my bass up and got it did what the guy told me and I went uh 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 and I went uh buzzing them frets I bet right yeah I found the note and I did it so primitive but when I did it. I literally jumped up and almost dropped the bass on the ground, screaming. I was so excited. I, I've never felt that feeling in my life before again since that day. And I was playing bass. And from that point on, I've been a bass player. I don't remember learning. I don't remember struggling. I don't remember uh, even doubting. It was every time I put my hand at that bass, I was happy. And I didn't know if I was good or bad and it didn't matter. And I didn't even think about it. It is crazy that you had, you were exposed to that much music over that period of time. And you have, I mean, it's mind blowing to me that you're in any rational world. And again, we're, you know, I didn't grow up in a rational world. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, like 13, 14, 15, 16, okay, 23. just when I hear that, it's, it's real. Cause I would have thought, you know, it shows up in a church. A, a buddy's got something in the basement. A buddy's dad's got a baseline around type of story. No, was <laughs> not you. Where, where, where we came from. Yeah. The, like I said, records were playing, but that was it. Um, I did play saxophone for one year when I was 12 years old. It was a baritone sax. I could barely hold it up when, when, when I tried to stand up with it. It was so long, but I loved the tone. And to this day, I still write my bass lines and my, my riffs up with a baritone sax 
in mind. I used to love uh, American Bandstand with the bass or the baritone sax. Such a great song. You know, and I pick up my bass and then you got metal guitar. And all of a sudden you just keep building up to it and put your own your own spin on it. And it because music, I mean, there's nothing new that anybody can come up with. But the only new thing that you can ever do with anything is put your own spin on it and give it you. That's the only thing you can do. So talk to me a little bit about progressive rock as as a bigger thing. What is happening at the ages of 23 up until, you know, we're going to talk, I guess, up until late 80s about, you know, when the band gets a deal and, and goes on. Where are you in terms of musical choices that is bringing you very much front and center to a genre of music that again, I mean, if we're going to be very transparent and honest, and I think you and I would be, it was like a real white guy type of music. Yeah. Well, it's, um, my thing was between 20 and 30 was 70 and 80. So it's total seventies from deep purple, Led Zeppelin, um, Uriah Heep, Black Sabbath, uh, I can go on and on and was on. Was Yes playing and, into that and ELP uh, and things I'm, like that? or I'm, I'm going to get to that. Okay, too. cool. Yes, because those were my favorite bands at the moment because they all the singers sounded like they wanted to be black and all the riffs were. It was soul music. But then I heard Roundabout by Yes. Mm. Roundabout, that song said to me, you can write a song with more parts than what you're used to. Right. And it said to me, listen to the bass tone. This is something you never heard, and it sounds like a clavinet, clavinet bass. Because with Sly, with Sly and with uh, Stevie Wonder, the clavinet was like, I went nuts hearing a clavinet. It reminded me of a, a, a grand piano playing the low notes. And so when Chris Squire did that on his bass, all those things came into my mind, and I embraced that tone because it was so familiar to what I loved. And then he starts playing all these notes, and then out of all that, he goes, you know, and I'm going, now he's funky, and he's busy. I'm thinking, that's interesting. Then I started listening to the song and all the counterparts and all the things that were going on. And then when you get to the middle of the song where the riff goes, and the singing is out of the drifting clouds on the ground. And I'm thinking, what is this? This great melody riff going underneath these harmonies that ain't got nothing to do with it. And I sat down and tried and learned to sing it and play it at the same time. That's when the thing about singing and playing became really uh, in a forefront for me because it was a challenge. Because I sang all my life. I always sang and I never had a problem singing. But playing bass and, and, and loving to sing, that kind of woke me up and, and gave me uh, my own voice in a way that I, you know, nothing else had. You know, it gave me control and it gave me a tone. And and these two things, I just embraced them. Um, I think that after that, every band I was ever in, I was 
almost every band, I was a singer because nobody would let me just play bass, which is I kind of wanted to do in many, many ways is just stand back in the corner and play bass. I would have been happy doing that. But somehow these two things were obvious and I was pushed into doing it and gladly, you know. And but yeah, the 70s. And then even punk rock came along, you know, right. and the Sex Pistols. And that stuff, I'm going, wow, I'm digging this. You know, it, it was there was this attitude, there was this rawness to it. And the other thing also you, I, uh, um, folks might not understand is I was the only black kid in my grade school for, uh, it, well, first grade, my cousin graduated. She was in eighth grade. And after that, I was the only black kid in my high school, or grade school. And the town I lived in, were like there were four or five black families, if that many, when I grew up. Um, now, all my cousins and relatives, I had to go to another town to hang out with them and see them. And, so, and, and a few of the older ones lived down the street. So, I, like I said, I always heard music. But where I lived at, I went to school with nothing but white kids. So I listened to rock music with them. The Beatles, I remember when the Beatles uh, was, you know, that happened. I was at my friend's house and she played I Want to Hold Your Hand over and over again on, with, on a, the 45 while we sat there talking. So rock music has always been around. And the other thing is, sadly enough, I should, <laughs> I don't know. It's like when I moved in with my mother when I was, 14 it was a black area and i didn't know how to be black black being black back then there was a protocol you know and i didn't know how to do it i was this black boy who acted like he was white so you know i was uncomfortable but i learned you know how to fit in and not be called uncle tom you know and be laughed at but i gravitated to white things because i was used to it you know and um when i got out of high school and started listening to rock music again. And when I started going to college, I started hanging out with white kids because it was the music that I liked. And I was a hippie. And, you know, there were a few black guys that were hippies. There was a few of us, you know, and girls. You know, we had our afros and wore our bell bottoms and stuff and went to rock concerts and listened to Jimi Hendrix and Buddy Miles. So there was a handful of us black hippies. But mainly it was nothing but white people. So I just sort of gravitated back to what I was used to not to say i'm uncomfortable around black people but it was just that you know there was a camaraderie when it came to the music and because and another thing and and around black people when i started listening to rock music black folks used to say why are you listening to that white boy music you know even my mom said you know if you sang soul music you might have made it you know and i go well that's not why i do what i do i've always done what i do because i like to do it no other reason so yeah. So that's where that happened, and that's why there was this. Okay, the other thing about the rock music, too, is that, you know, I purposely tried to sing soulful in rock music because I thought that was appropriate. I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, but then Yes came along and started singing this choir boy stuff with these harmonies, and I thought, wow, I was in the Glee Club, and I love those harmonies. I, I love doing harmonies and counterpoints and cluster chords. And so all of a sudden, there was another door open going, hey, man, put this in your rock and roll. You know, this can you can do this. Uh, so that was the 70s. The 80s came along. Um, I had moved to Springfield, Missouri, and that's when I met Jerry and Ty. And everybody knows how we got together. And you know, I've told that story a zillion times. Yeah, for those, for you know, Jerry Gaskell, drums, uh, and Ty Tapper on guitar. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and uh, when I got there, um, it was a college town, and 
there was no mainstream like radio and stuff and metal amongst alternative college students was, you know, it was a no, no. So I didn't hear anything when I moved there. I remember ACDC came out with back in black and I had a friend who had an Iron Maiden and a Judas Priest album, and I didn't care for him too much. You know, I didn't get it because it wasn't soulful. I didn't understand the, the, the whole English metal thing at that moment. Uh, it was a whole different genre that I was like 30 years old at that point. And I don't know. It just I just it just didn't hit me. And I, I guess also that, you know, the new wave was coming and punk rock. And so I was listening to Pretenders and and uh, talking heads and, and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I started incorporating, we started as King's X, we were incorporating that type of stuff in our music. But with Ty and Jerry both, we're all 70s rock people, you know, that's where we come, came from. So even the new wave type alternative music that we were writing still had that, that, six, that 70s rock edge. You know, Ty always still played with distortion, even though it wasn't cool to play with distortion and alternative alternative music, you know, we still just kind of wore our hearts on our sleeves. And and through that, I mean, we never bowed to any genre. We just kept incorporating things in our lives until we got to, uh, you know, um, when Ty wrote um, uh, Pleiades in 85, I think it was, where he dropped Detune because of his bluegrass influences and decided to write himself sort of a she's so heavy type of Beatles song because that's what you know him and Jerry were totally into the heavy side of the Beatles and uh he came up with that song which was amazing I thought and it was a sound that I'd never heard before and so we kind of gravitated to that song immediately I think I mean when I learned how he dropped the tune I went and took that song and wrote half the first King's X rec album from from the way he wrote that song. So so we we start our own little thing amongst ourselves, you know, from our own experiences. So do, when you say the first King's X album, we're talking about Out of the Silent Planet 88? Yes. Okay. Yes, Out of the Silent Planet 88. Well, yeah, because it's interesting, even on the Wikipedia, like there was this band sneak preview that happened in 83. And again, mm -hmm. you know, for, for people who may, may get confused with dates, I mean, that really was that the early days of, of, of the L.A. rock scene, hard rock scene, hair, hair metal, whatever you call it. And then if I think about 88, when you did Out of the Silent Planet, and I, I mean, as great of an album as that was, 89's Gretchen Goes to Nebraska really cracked a nut in, in terms of people yeah. really, I mean, that was for me, I mean, that was the album for at least me where I was like, this is something out there. And in 88, there was a shift in the world. And that's what I'm really interested in is one aspect is there is progressive rock and that's still happening. Alternative is really moving. I mean, you're, you're a year into Nirvana getting ready to really make some crazy noise. There seems to be something in the air, but at the same time, there was still this, you know, with Gretchen, there was still, you know, the image was still an important thing. What does a band look like? Or how, you know, how does it play out? And I always, I was always curious about that moment in time for you creatively because there is this weird intersection going on where people are pushing the band, whether it's the label or management, into this hard rock world, but there's a reality of this progressive other thing. At the same time, you, really early days of alternative being becoming more commercialized, I would say. Right. Are you seeing all of those things at the same time, or are you just head down writing music and it just so happens that these things are colliding? I watched them collide. I didn't know what was going on. 
Um, because, you know, growing up, you're just used to a new band coming and another band comes and they just never stop coming and you buy your records and now, you know, you, you loved your music. But I remember because we were making music, there was Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, there was Jane's Addiction and Faith No More, I think, uh, they were just starting. There, there might have been a couple others, but those were the bands that really were starting. Where I remember, we care a lot by Faith No More. That was before the, the right. big album, yeah. you know. So, so I'm talking way back in the day, and um, and we were, you know, doing our thing. Um, we, I don't know. I was just not into hair metal, um, and I think that um, all those bands were kind of finding those outside influences like we were doing, you know, with they, they, you just didn't want to confine yourself to the Van Halen format, you know, like, like, like hair metal was, or even Guns N' Roses as big as they got and what they did. I mean, they put, they put the balls back into rock and roll for sure. Um, but still I didn't get Guns N' Roses to me. They were, uh, just another, uh, Aerosmith to me at first, you know, I didn't understand what they, the relevance in the time period and what was going on there. So I'm an old guy listening to something that other people heard as new. When I heard it as I heard the influences. So I wasn't that, that gung ho about it. But, um, all these bands were like doing this, these things that I was just going, what's going on here. And, um, but we're just rolling along, just having fun. I re okay, I remember exactly what you said earlier now about like sonically and way we looked. I remember <laughs> the the alarm had come out, and I loved the alternative bands here because they just ratted everything and they acted like they didn't comb their hair. So I, I really kind of pushed the guys to do that. Which, if I had any more smarts. I would have said, just grow your hair out like we did right after that. And because that would have been cool because hair, hair metal was on it. Her hair look, that hair look was on its way out. The other thing is, you know, we didn't know any better. You know, I mean, for me personally, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Prince, uh, Little Richard, I've always been that guy that is a little flamboyant when it comes to my rock and roll, the way I look. I've always been that way. So I just, I, I like to straighten my hair out and, and doing the mohawk and putting all the jackets on and stuff. I, 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 you know, we played the rock star guy, you know, but, um, then grunge comes along and, and I go, Oh wow. You know, I really was that kid at the end of a genre. I thought I was trying to make it cool when I was actually at the end of it. <laughs> mm. So, uh, you know, that kind of, it, it helped to shoot us in the foot because we've always been called a late 80s band, you know, even though some of those other bands came out in late 80s, but they're called, you know, 90s bands. So I get it. If we had to just change our attitude a little bit or maybe wrote songs that weren't so spiritual and positive, you know, and more angry songs and stuff, we might have been, um, you know, accepting the grunge thing. But, uh, but we saw a change. When the grunge things happened, it was like, yeah. Night and day. Like, yeah. Oh, you yeah. You woke up one day and it was gone. Yeah, it was there, right? Oh, yeah. I remember going on the road and uh, Gretchen had just come out. We did a seven-month tour. And I remember coming home and turning on Headbangers Ball. And now, mind you, before I left on the road, Headbangers Ball was playing hair metal. Basically, that was it. There was nothing else. I came back home seven months later, and every two, every band was new 
except Bon Jovi and all the new bands were drop detuned or had some kind of groove going with melodies. Everything changed and it was had a familiar sound, you know, because King's X was doing a similar kind of thing, you know. So I went, wow. And it kind of I, I loved it. And I jumped in the bandwagon and I, and I went and bought all the records and, and rejoiced. And so finally we got bands that are fucking killing it, singing and, and, and having a groove, the thing that I loved in music. So it was a nineties to me was one of the best times in music, the seventies and the nineties for me. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree. I launched my second magazine in the early nineties and the opening party that we did was, uh, the guy, it was Alice in Chains, Screaming Trees and Grunt Truck played. It was just awesome. <laughs> just like, oh man, I love Grunt Truck. Oh man. And people remember like that was an incredible tour. I think that was before Alice in Chains event. I think it was for the Van Halen. They opened up for Van Halen on balance tour and that yeah. like brought it into mm -hmm. more popular but this was when they were doing that first tour it was crazy right well I, i'm uh we played in seattle and i met allison chance before they got a record deal and we've been friends ever since um and they actually i i went to first time i went to see them they were opening for extreme in this little teeny bar <laughs> there was it was no stage so if you stood in front of the band you couldn't see the band and uh it was it was really amazing and after the show me and Lindy got drunk at the bar and we have been friends ever since you know and you know he's a little like great Lenny. but uh and jeff from pearl jam he would fly out to uh new york and hang out with us uh at megaforce uh um, um office and then we'd have dinner and go to concerts and stuff and and that was a lot of fun. Just he invited me to go hang out and, and hear the new uh, Mother Love Bone and, you know, before Andrew died and stuff. So mm. so we were they embraced King's X. Uh, a lot of those bands, those people up there big time, you know, so my best friends are from those bands, Pearl Jam and, and Alice in Chains. I love those guys to death um, and Pantera. I mean, all, all of uh, all these bands that came out of the 90s were you know, we were like big brother to him in, in a lot of ways. And it was a lot of fun. It made you feel good. They encouraged us, you know, when, you know, you hear, you know, somebody out like, like Lenny said, I can't wait till we can open for you guys, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, watch, look at what they've done, <laughs> yeah. you know, or Pearl Jam. And we opened for Pearl Jam, uh, you know, and when I first saw Pearl Jam, I saw them opening for Alice in Chains after we had opened for ACDC in a little bar. You know, and we were hanging out, drinking at the bar, and then Mookie Blaylock got up and played the first set, and then Alice in Chains got up. I mean, Alice Chains' record was out a few months, you know, so we're all just, all of us were green, and we're all wide-eyed, but, but they all thought that we were, we had made it, <laughs> you know, and they just wanted to get there. And, and that's the thing, we watched them just bam, overnight, all of them, you know, all those bands, and, and yeah, I'm proud of them, and uh I feel like uh, a big brother who's looking uh, over at his younger brothers and sisters and just smiling and go, yeah, they took it to the world. I'm proud of them. What's really interesting about King's X to me is when I look at the discography, it's like the band just didn't stop. It's like 88, 89, 90, 92, 94, 96, 98, 2000, 2001, 2003. It's just album after album in, in a world where, yeah, there would used to be the cycle of one year on, one year off, right? You record an album, go to or come back and do an album. But it's amazing the body of work when I think about it, because now you're talking about you know, 15 plus albums. I mean, we'll talk about the five solo albums, but 
<laughs> when you think about that work ethic and and sticking to it, you know, really having three members of a band truly stick to it, how do you reflect on on that time? Because it's a frenetic place to be creating that amount of music and having to tour it and promote it. It just seems like, when did you breathe? What was life like then? It was crazy. Well, after we left Atlantic, that's when we started to breathe. And that's when we realized that we were not going to be a huge band who had millions of dollars and we're not going to be rock stars and the world's darlings and sell arenas at that point. And so um, before that, yeah, it was all that. It was pressure. It was people with throwing money at you and promoting you and and uh, being handled. Um, it never stopped me from writing music. Or I don't think for Ty and Jerry either. I can only speak for myself. Writing music has always been my outlet. I wrote my first song when I was 12, I guess, but first rock song when I was 18. And from that point on, I just wrote songs. And I never thought about why or what would happen or what I was doing. Like I said before, I, I never, I don't think a lot about doing things that I instinctively do. I just keep doing them. And then I look back and somebody tells me what I did and I go, oh, I did that. <laughs> you know, and then I kind of go, oh, wow. And um, so, you know, writing music was always something I love to do. And I remember when I first wrote Over My Head, uh, the first draft of it was with two cassette players that had little speakers on them that they had the buttons on the side that you stuck, you know, the speaker was on the uh, side of the, the, uh, the, the cassette player. I mean, talk about the first cassette players ever. And I used a little Mattel drum uh, pad and I played this beat and sang it and, and, and I played guitar and I played the tapes back and forth and played while it was playing until I got four tracks going with no microphones, you know, plugged in or anything. It was just two primitive tape players. And that's when I realized I could write songs and remember them, you know. And then I borrowed a four track from a friend of mine. And that's when all the doors opened. All of a sudden, I got drum drops, they're called. These records that had uh, drum beats on them. Sure. There was a shuffle, shuffle. There was a jazz beat. There was a blues beat. I wrote all the first, you know, couple years of King's X songs, we were called The Edge at the time with those drum beats. You can still hear on the demos, you hear that pew and all those kind of things in the <laughs> background. And um, and then I, I found a, uh, a friend of mine showed me this uh, drum machine, R7. And I remember I went to the music store and, and my friend worked there. And I says, how does this work? And he showed me that you could program a drum machine by just hitting a kick, snare, kick, snare. But then you go hi-hat and you quantitize it too. So I had this song in my head was uh, Fall On Me. So I went over to the music store and I said, you got a couple minutes? I said, I got this song. It goes like this. And he sat down and beat and, and, and uh, programmed the three beats on that song and put it on a cassette for me. And I went home with it and I wrote that song. And then I finally got my own uh, drum machine like that and started at that point, it was like, here we go. Um, and I think, think I wrote almost everything on King's X records um, in that configuration. And then I found a six track 
cassette player. And then I got, oh, more tracks, you know, and started to work. Imagine if you had a MacBook now, right? (laughs) Um, No, because here's here's the way what I feel about it. And I, I hope this doesn't sound bad, but, you know, digits. Um, how do I say this? Um, music has changed, and maybe I just don't want it to change, but music sounds different because of digits. And because of digits, digits make sonics easier. You can push a button now and make something sound okay, you know? But back in the day, we had tape, and we had nothing to EQ but a treble and a, you know, a little knob and maybe a cheap compressor. And we made music that had so much heart and emotion, and we had to fight with our frequencies and our tones because because the quality was so bad to make it sound good, like a professional, you know, record. And that's what I used to try to do: just painstakingly fight that mix until it almost sounded like I could fool everybody that this is the real deal. And it was my challenge. And then when when um, the digital revolution came along, everything was just easy. And then all of a sudden I noticed compression came along and these easy fixes to make everything sound good. And all of a sudden I'm finding out that now I go into the studio and in some situations I find engineers that just put a great mic on you, get an okay sound and compress you and then put you up in the mix and walk away. Because all you got to do is brick all everything, and it, and you can hear it, and and and, and uh, saturate it a little bit, and it sounds loud. And all of a sudden, we've got this shitty sounding music that just sounds like static that has become the norm. And it's very difficult for me to listen to anything nowadays because of that. It's like my ears are ruined because I miss the the space in the air. And and when I do find a band that does that, you know, my ears are there. But here's the good thing. Um, uh, UA, uh, United Audio, is it called? I always just call it UA. But they found a way to emulate tape and emulate um, all all the tape aspects and the two aspects of analog music to, um, to a degree that I can't tell the difference. And so I've just got all this equipment lately and I'm in heaven again. I feel like I'm uh, on a 24 track analog board and I'm writing more songs and it's and I'm having more fun and I'm more excited because I figure after, you know, 40, 50 years of writing music, you can't get any worse. You can only get better. I hope. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. I, I got two more things I want to ask you about. I want to be yeah. respectful of your time. Um, sure. I wanted to end on gear, but because you started talking about gear, I'm curious because normally, (laughs) again, this show is really interesting in that normally when you interview a person who plays bass, it's always like, what are you playing? What's your gear? What's your rig? And and I'm always, I'm just more interested in the art. And we've had a great conversation about your history and your art and it's, it's, it's great. But I, but what makes me want to ask you about the gear is because I feel like there's an art to your gear. I think about this Tech 21, this DP3X, and again, I'm not a gearhead. I just look at it and see it be demoed. I'm like, this is something really different. And this guy, Doug Pinnock, has his own, I'm going to call it an amp. It's probably not an amp. You're going to laugh at me by saying that, but whatever. 12-string bass. I mean, I know you started off on a Yamaha a while ago, but now this Schecter bass is out and... You know, you see a 12-string bass, it's hard not to stop and look. And when you hear it, it's hard not to stop and listen. Can you 
Can you elaborate on the art creative side of why you're doing this? Because that's also, I've heard from people who know you and love you that, you know, you really are very, very, I'll use the word tough on the sound and the gear. Like you're very specific. So what is it about 12 string basses, having your own amps, preamps, effect pedals? I mean, these are all signature, very unique things that stand alone in the marketplace. What is that all about for you? I think it's just that I'm a tone freak. I always have been to a fault. Um, and I'll make this real quick. When I was a kid and I saw a treble knob, I'd run over and turn the treble one way or the other because I knew it made a difference, even as a little child. And I remember one time my cousin got a record player that had a bass and treble knob. And I was going, whoa. And I'd sneak around and turn the knobs when nobody was looking because I'd get, get, you know, my hands get slapped if I did that. And I kept watching. And then there was a bass treble and a mid-range knob. And as I grew up, I started learning frequencies. And, and I learned that if I manipulated these frequencies, I would find more pleasure in what I was listening to. And so when I heard bass, um, it always moved me and it always touched me. But when I heard Roundabout by Yes, I heard a voice in it, which is is a tone that was uniquely someone's. And then I, I could hear the grand piano tone. And like I said before, the clavinet tone. And when I heard those tones, it sounded like a person's sort of a voice. It was tangible. You could touch it. And when you mixed it with the low end, it became this monster that I was mesmerized with. And I went out to create that monster that was in my head. Um, And I did that for years and years until I perfected it to a point where it's my own and I know how to manipulate it to make it sound that way. And luckily, um, Tech 21 wanted to make a pedal for me that sounded like what I was trying to do with a rack of instruments and amps and stuff, you know. So they they whittled it all down into a little pedal perfectly for me. Um, And the only thing I can say about it is the biggest thing about playing bass to me is that if you put your personality in it, there's a lot of bass players who play the notes, they play in time, they play perfect. And that's what you need. It's like when you play a keyboard, it's perfect and it's sonically correct. But when I play bass, I want to sound like I'm singing that bass line. I don't want to go do, do, do. I want to go doom, doom, do, doom. And I want to shake it. I want to wobble that bass just a little bit to give it that, that voice that, that sets it apart from the guitar player who has his own voice and shake. You know, And so with the tone that I used, it could accent that. And live, sometimes people used to say it sounded like an ogre speaking to you or talking to you, you know, and I love that. And that's just kind of the sound that I was going for. Um, and every bass player that, that I know that I love oh, has, you know, they've adapted their tone, you know, John Entwistle and uh, Billy Sheehan and everybody that, you know, I, I feel a kinship to them because they painstakingly worked on their tone. There's other, but don't get me wrong, because I have much respect for bass players who can play out of crappy stuff and make it work. I'm blown away when I hear I go, man, that tone is horrible. But then when they get done with me as to what they did on that bass, you know, you just got to walk away and go, hey, I don't know nothing. <laughs> oh, 
So, and the last thing is obviously there's a brand new solo album. It's called Joy Bomb. It's your fifth solo album. And it took you two years to write. And again, we think about what two years were. There was a global pandemic. So there's something going <laughs> yeah. on there. But I'm, I'm really curious because King gets, King's X is still somewhat active. There's some health things going on in there. It's been in the media. How do you decide that it's going to be Doug Pinnock and not a solo album versus it being a King's X album? And then I'm also just curious a little bit about Joy Bomb in terms of those two years and how the writing was different being in a different place because it's not a choice, but we've all been forced to be in a specific place. Well, the thing thing for me in songwriting is I never write for anybody but myself. Um, that's not as I would you know, sound selfish, but you know I write the song to for me to like, not anyone else. And if someone likes it, I'm happy. And if they want to play it, I'm more than happy. And that's the way it's always been with King's X. Is I've always written music. I've always been a dominant songwriter. I, I wrote many, many songs before the other guys even contributed. And it wasn't that they couldn't. Uh, I just was that dominant guy. I always had a new song all the time. You know, listen, I got a new song. A week later, I had a new song, you know. And uh, we just kept doing that. And like I said earlier, when I got the four tracks and eight tracks and stuff, I just kept going. I'd lock myself away for weeks and come up with 10 or 15 songs and go play them for all my friends at parties and stuff and see how they reacted to them. And so it's been something that I've never stopped doing. Um, even with King's X, every record that we do, I've got about 20 or 30 songs that, that they choose five or six or seven or eight from, you know. And... And so all of a sudden I decided, I thought, well, I might as well just start doing some solo records just to get all these songs out or else I'm never going to, everybody's not going to hear them because I keep writing. And so that's how that happened. So for me, my solo music and King's X music is me writing my oh, uh, me writing music with King's X. Like I said, I share it with Ty and Jerry, but they're always demos usually. Um but with all the other projects that I work with, I only play bass and I only tend, if I'm a, I'm a singer, like in KXM or Grinder Blues, if I sing, I'm going to make up the melodies and, and the words and I'm the bass player, so I'm going to play bass. But the other things that are going on, they do what they do. That's the thing for me is in my side projects, I really, really want everyone to contribute who they are, what they are. And... Um, because the reason I play with them is because they have proven themselves. You know, Ray Luzzi or George Lynch, you know, the guys in Grinder Blues, um, uh, Trace Mountains with Pearl, the guys in Pearl Jam. I mean, everybody's done it. And so there's nothing for me to say to them or direct or say, hey, man, why don't you play this or that? For me, if they come up with something, no matter what it is, I'll put my spin on it. And we laugh and go, oh, wow, cool. Never thought of that. Or I'd make up a bass line and they'll come up with a guitar line. And I'll go, oh, wow, that's the furthest thing from my mind. That's badass. But with King's X, you know, because of how it started out with me writing all the time in my outlet, it probably always will be a, a big part of it. You know, the new King's X record, I think I got seven songs on the record and Ty and Jerry share the other ones. But, you know, there's a lot of music and um you know, I always say I write a lot of songs, but Ty and Jerry write really quality songs. They don't write as many as I do. But you know what I'm saying? I can shit out many, many songs. And then some of them are great. Some of them you got to go, hey, let's work on this. And, you know, the guys will work on it and make it a great song or make it a King's X song, you know. Um, 
you know, sometimes they do my songs exactly like the way I wrote them. And sometimes they, they change them all around and make them something that I never would have expected. And I'm glad they did. You know, yeah, um, it's, 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 it's like a marriage, you know, it's a give and take. And at the end of the day, you know that the three are greater than one and it will always be that way. And so there's there's no need to take a front or back seat. Just be a part of the wheel and keep on going. The, the truth of your amazing career is that we could remove your solo albums and King's X and there's still a body of work that is incredible to explore. You talked about KXM, you talked about Grinder Blues. That's the recent stuff. I mean, you could keep yeah. going back. I mean, the work you did with MC5, I saw, just, it goes on and on. And I just want to thank you so much for spending some time with me. It's been you know amazing for me at least to reconnect. I remember having conversations like this with you in the, in the early 90s, but more importantly, there's this great new solo album out. It's called Joy Bomb. You got to check it out. It's just crazy great stuff some great videos too doug thank you so much for time let people know where they can find out more about you the new albums all that stuff um it's literally um doug pinnick uh, <laughs> uh doug, yeah doug pinnick.com um and if you just just look up doug pinnick uh and p-i-n-n-i-c-k d-o-u-g or d-u-g just look it up anywhere. You'll find any, more than you need to know about me. Uh, <laughs> and even uh, YouTube, the same thing. Just put put my name up there. Put King's X up there. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. The, nowadays, it's scary, <laughs> actually. <laughs> it's great. Doug, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. <laughs>